<laughs> well, we indeed rejoice with Derek and his public declaration uh, following Christ that he made at camp with his family this summer. And in addition to Derek, uh, we celebrate uh, five uh, people who are part of our church family who were baptized last Sunday, uh, Landon, uh, Zane, uh, Pano, Julia, and Beth were all baptized, whether that's here on campus or at the beach last week. And so we just praise God uh, for his work in their life. That's right. <clears throat> we, we should celebrate that. A lot of you guys uh, celebrate uh, big time when your team's doing well on Saturday, uh, unless you're a Florida State fan, and uh, just want to remind you of that. But um, we, for as believers in Christ, this is the thing we celebrate, is people's profession of who he is and public declaration that they're following him. And so we rejoice in what God is doing in the life of our church. And speaking of that, today uh, isn't quite as packed, but uh, several Sundays over the last few weeks, uh, this room has had over 400 people in it, in a room that seats about 500, um, 500 people who were in the 90s, and I'm not saying we're bigger now, but we're bigger now. Uh, so it could be a little uh, tight in here on Sundays at uh, the 9.30 hour, and so let me just, again, encourage you, if you're able to attend uh, the 11 o'clock service, uh, that would be great. Um, also, as Alec mentioned during the welcome, we know you love those edge seats because you're protecting us all. Uh, but scoot in uh, so it's easier for people to find seats when you come in uh, early. And then uh, let me also just say, hey, we're growing. Uh, our church, uh, you know, about five years ago was about 500 people, uh, got up to about 800-something people. COVID happened, and we were about zero people on campus. And then in just over two years, we're about 1,000 people on campus, uh, which is a lot. And we haven't added any staff. <laughs> and yeah, we can praise God for that. Um, but let me just be honest, we're not doing a lot of things well, and we're figuring out a lot of things, and so I will say let us know nicely, uh, whether that's uh, letting First Impressions uh, Connect team know, or letting uh, pastors or staff know. We may say, hey, that's a great idea. You help us with that, uh, make that better. Uh, but just, you know, let us know if there's an issue, and be patient as we continue to figure things out. But let me say this, if you're part of our church, isn't it worth it? to kind of go through these growing pains and figure it out because of all that the Lord is doing. Uh, and so, you know, I know that sometimes it's like, oh man, I gotta find a seed or, uh, you know, they didn't communicate this well, but hey, let's just grow in grace together and be committed to the incredible things that God is doing through this church family. Uh, so uh, I'm just thankful for the many who are dedicated to that. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading us in worship. I was talking to another church the other day about how they fill in, have people fill in when their uh, worship pastor's out, and I'm like, well, we've had uh, in the 8 o'clock service a doctor, in the 9.30 and 11, a pilot and a banker. We're not paying them. I don't think we're paying them. Uh, they're just people who love Jesus and are committed to the church. And so isn't that awesome uh, in a church our size to just see people who love Jesus who just use their gifts and talent for him? Uh, speaking of that, uh, I want to mention to you that Nice Feel Strong is this evening. Um, this is something that was started uh, really out of the heart of two of our members, Perry Ann and Eddie Herring, uh, who went through uh, challenges in their family. And because of those challenges and God's uh, victory in their 
life. They want to help others. So that's expanded to multiple churches in our community who are coming together just to pray for and rally around those of our, our community who are struggling with someone and their family who has a, uh, addiction or mental health issues. And so I'd encourage you to be there tonight at 6 o'clock. And then also, you may have noticed some yellow shirts. And Mark and Robin, I know you're in here. If you guys would just stand up for a second. Uh, Mark and Robin Nelson are the leaders of our disaster relief team. And they're headed down tomorrow, right, to Southwest Florida to help with the assessment of what's going on. And others from our team and from across the state uh, will be going to down to Southwest Florida to help those churches there. And so thank you guys uh, in your retirement. Uh, and your retirement uh, just for what you do. And thank you to those who will be serving. And we want to continue to pray for them. Well, hey, if you uh, have a Bible with you, if you would open it up to Mark chapter 14, uh, the verses will be on the screen that we'll be going through this morning. If you don't, uh, we are picking up uh, in Mark chapter 14 after the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And uh, after this last supper takes place, all four gospel writers inform us of a now famous exchange that takes place between Jesus and the disciples. I'll read Mark chapter 14, verse 26 and 27 to start. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, Luke and John do not make it as clear as Matthew and Mark do, who seem to indicate that this conversation takes place on the journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. On this 20 to 30 minute walk, Jesus tells the disciples that we, they will all fall away. Jesus is saying something is going to lead you to fall away. Matthew's record of this shows us that Jesus was talking about himself. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus says, because of me, this night, to his disciples, you are going to fall away. He makes reference here to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus understood that God was causing this to happen in the coming hours. And he understood that it would cause the disciples to fall away. He knew that the current expectations of the disciples were not that which was ready to fully embrace God's plan for Jesus. The disciples still had a perspective that was set on an earthly kingdom. And Jesus offends a mind which is set on an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus offends a mind which is set on an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus, the life of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus is offensive to someone whose desire is the things of this world. In the life of Jesus, we see him offend people often because of what he taught. In John chapter six, it's recorded that when he began to teach that you know the bread was his body and the, the juice was his blood, that people stopped following him because of this message. In Mark chapter 10, when a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and then come follow me. 
We learn that the rich young ruler turns away sad. When Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath and, and tradition and, and how to love people, and that the Sabbath and traditions were made for God and God was not, excuse me, were made for man and man was not made for them, the Pharisees, the religious crowd, they walk away. The scripture teaches us that someone who looks at Jesus, who looks at the gospel, who looks at the scripture with a worldly perspective, sees it as foolish. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the word of the cross is silly. It's foolish. What good is it to someone who says, I want to have a great life on earth. Why then would I deny myself? Why then do I need a savior who died? What good is that to me for the life that I want? Paul goes on to say later in verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. You see, familiarity or comfortability in our context with God causes us to forget that the message of Christ is really offensive. It tells us God is holy and that we are not holy and that the only way we could be made holy is not by anything we could do because we are so unholy that we can't do enough. So God had to do something for us. He had to send his son. He had to send God in the flesh to die for us. And so what that means for our life is that we're not gonna be able to figure it out. We're not gonna be able to pull ourselves up for our, by our bootstraps. And that means we must utterly be dependent on Christ for our position of righteousness and for the direction of our life. But Jesus is not saying, the gospel does not say, hey, follow me and lose. He says, I know it may not make sense with the worldly perspective, but my kingdom is not of this world. He goes on to say in verse 28, after he says they will fall away, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In the same way that Jesus was showing that in his temporary incarnate state, God causes the striking to happen to him, he uses the passive voice here as well to indicate that God is going to cause him to rise from the grave. In the same way that God is striking me, I am going to be risen by God. But he says, you will fall away because of the striking because of what is going to happen to me on this night. Now note, he is not saying to the disciples, you aren't legit, you aren't my disciples. He's saying you're not strong enough to stay through what is about, about to happen. Now this is offensive to someone who says, I am brave, I am enough. And that's why Peter says what he says, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, you ever watch a TV show or a movie or read a book and you just identify with someone in the story? You're like, these are my people. He's my person. 
Well, reading the Bible, I feel that way about the Apostle Peter. He's committed. He's passionate. He's the first to step up. He's the first to speak up. I think a lot of us leader types can resonate with Peter. And so here Peter says, I hear you, Jesus, and maybe these bozos will fall away, but not me. But we need to understand that while our bravado may cause us to see this as admirable, as William Alexander points out, this is one of the most unfavorable specimens on record of the dark or the weak side of the great apostle's character. Because it exhibits not mere self-sufficiency and overweening self-reliance, but an arrogant estimate of his own strength in comparison with others. What Craig Blomberg points out is that Peter here is more impulsive than he is truthful. Peter is saying what he wants to be true. As a leader type, and maybe everybody, we tend to say things that we want to be true. As a leader, I know we feel the pressure to say something and hope that it comes true, even though we might be lacking in full confidence that it will come true, and we need to give off the air of confidence so that other people will think, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. She knows what she's talking about. And so that's really what Peter's doing. Oh, no, I'm not gonna fall away. But Jesus knows the truth. And Jesus repeats this with great clarity. Verse 30 says, Jesus said to him, he's talking directly to Peter now, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Deny is a strong compound form here, which means utterly deny. He's saying you will deny, amen. You will deny truly. It is indeed true that you will deny And he said, this is going to happen tonight before the rooster crows. So before the sun rises. And he says, you are going to deny me three times. And verse 31 says that Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter says, no, I'll I'll die for you. That's how committed I am to not denying you. I will die for you. And the NASB maybe gives us a little clear insight into what's going on. It says, but Peter kept saying insistently, he repeatedly said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing as well. Peter says, if I have to die with you, I will but there is no way I'm going to deny you. And he's insistent about it. He's emphatic about it. Again, a passionate, confident guy. Some of us can resonate here. But he's arguing with Jesus. So yeah, he's confident. But in his confidence, he's arguing with Jesus. And Peter becomes adamant, but not introspective. And I would suggest to you that he makes a mistake that many of us have made or maybe we are making and that has caused us to be in the place that we are today. And we fail to realize this, self-confidence causes us to lack self-awareness. Self-confidence causes us to lack self-awareness. Now I coach youth sports, I like following sports and this is a very glaring issue that you often see because confidence is something that is needed to be a good athlete, right? But if we begin to become too confident in our ability, 
and rely on ourselves and don't listen to the voices that are speaking into our life, then we won't grow in the ways that we need to grow and it will end up hurting us as we develop or uh, a team in the game that we play. I see this when it comes to school. There are people who, you know, their teachers are trying to teach them kind of the right way to learn or show your work, right, all these years. You're like, ah, I don't need to show my work. I can figure it out. And then you hit trigonometry or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, your self-confidence has caused you to lack self-awareness of the things that others were trying to show you in your life. I see this in the area of fitness. A lot of people by just nature naturally look more fit, but they don't take care of their bodies. And then when they hit 40, they hit 50, they hit 60, things begin to go wrong because of how they've treated their body. And so our self-confidence causes us to lack self-awareness. And, and you see this with religious people as well, where we might have a passion for God's word, a passion for the truth, but we really stop learning because we've learned so much already. Or we stop growing and letting people speak into our life. Or, because we've done so well, we stop guarding ourselves against temptation. And so we begin to go the very opposite of what Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. When we begin to trust in ourselves, even if God informed it up to a point, now we're trusting in ourselves. Now we're leaning on our own understanding. Now we're not really thinking about God in our everyday life, and he therefore is not making our paths straight. And so Peter says, I hear you, Jesus, but I got this. And the other disciples agree, yeah, us too. And I would just say this to some of you, just because you're not the vocal one doesn't mean that you aren't also in error. And we like to blame the vocal ones because everybody sees their mistakes but we need to ask ourselves, what direction are we going as well? And so here they are all thinking, we're not going to fall away. And as we will see when we look at the Garden of the Gethsemane next week, Jesus goes away and he prays. And he asks the disciples, keep watch. And the disciples fall asleep faster than your dad on family movie night. And Judas and the high priest and the Jewish officials come and arrest Jesus. Again, we'll look at all of this closely in the coming weeks, but we're glancing at it now so we have context for today. And Matthew tells us that Peter fights back, chops off the ear of one of the soldiers. Peter's a fighter. He's not gonna be quiet. He's not gonna sit back while someone tries to stop Jesus. And Matthew tells us that Jesus says, Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, this isn't a pacifism talk. The Bible shows us, if you understand systematically what the Bible teaches us, that there is a need for just war for the case of peace and protection. So that's what not, not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is addressing here is Peter's retribution, his retaliation. Why is Peter pulling out the sword here in this moment? He's mad. He's mad that they're about to lose. He's fighting back. It's certainly not to protect Jesus because he's Jesus Verse 53, Jesus clarifies that. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, don't you know the kind of authority I have? Peter knew that Jesus could take care of business. Peter isn't doing this thinking about what do I need to do to protect Jesus. He's doing this because he's mad. He didn't want things to go down the way that they were going down. Peter also rebuked Jesus after confessing that Jesus was the Christ when Jesus said the Son of Man has to die. Peter says, no, that can't be. 
And in that moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who had just confessed he was a Christ, flesh and blood did not reveal that to him, but the Father in heaven, then immediately turns to an earthly perspective. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're thinking about this from a worldly perspective. That's Satan's agenda that you're thinking about, not God's agenda. And he says, verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He says, I can stop this, but there's something greater that I have in mind. It was God's will that Jesus would be led to death. And as we talked about, when we talked about Judas's betrayal, God knows what is going on. And I've told you, Jesus says, this is God's plan. And you're thinking more about your desire than what I have taught you. And what I would suggest to you is that reliance on our strength to accomplish our will blinds us to God's strength to accomplish his will. Reliance on our strength to accomplish our will blinds us to God's strength to accomplish his will. I think this is one of the great challenges for the American church because we have a great deal of prosperity that has come, education that has come, and opportunity that has come from the freedoms that we've been presented with the American experiment. And so by and large, our life can be relatively good and we can see results from our life without really depending on God. I think this is why the American church really struggles with depending on the work of the Holy Spirit because we see ourselves accomplish so much. And Peter, with his personality here though, and what he's able to do and what he's able to accomplish is now being held back from doing what he sees is right. And he loses. And Jesus is arrested. And Jesus is led away to trial. And Mark, if you move forward to verse 66, tells us that Peter's following along. In the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Now again, just for, Luke, for reference, for clarity, Luke says this, verse, chapter 22, verse 54 and 55. Then they seized him, that's Jesus, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And so again, Peter being the leader, most of the disciples had scattered, but Peter's kind of still following along. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. But Mark tells us that this girl says, you were with Jesus, the Nazarene. And then Mark tells us in verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. He denied it, which is the same word for disowned it. And he basically claims to be ignorant here. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 69 says, and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Now Matthew tells us, chapter 26, verse 71, when he went out to the entrance, so he's withdrawing from where he was, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with, was, was with Jesus of Nazareth. So is this a different girl or is this the same girl? Luke says it's a man. My theory is that it's multiple people. And the important thing here is what is recorded in verse 70. It says again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
Matthew tells us how they know he was a Galilean. Certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. So I kind of, you know, they're from the south, they're from Galilee, kind of like us if we went up north. Most of us, they're going to know, nah, we know where you're from. But, but what's interesting here, if you really think about the context, is it's Passover. So Peter could have easily said, yeah, I'm here because it's Passover. But what this clearly reveals is Peter isn't really thinking. I don't think he's being sober-minded. I think his judgment is clouded by defeat, by not seeing his kingdom or Jesus' earthly kingdom built. And I think in this moment, we can easily conclude that Peter's probably hungry. Peter's probably isolated. He is isolated, and he's tired. And when you're hungry and you're isolated and you're tired, you're not in a good place. You typically don't think clearly. And so he denies Jesus, and he takes it a step further. Look at verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. There's no object here in the Greek, so it doesn't mean that he cursed himself, but rather that he brought a curse on himself. Began indicates that he's not just doing this once, he's saying this ongoing. He's basically telling people, I swear to God, I don't know him, over and over. And he's saying, if I'm lying, may something bad happen to me. May, if I'm lying, maybe he said, maybe I struck be struck with leprosy or worse, may I be a person that now has multiple cats in my house. He said, may something bad happens to me. He's really denying Jesus and he's, he's denying it to the full extent. And verse 72 says, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now Mark in his conciseness does not record a valuable detail here that Luke shares about what takes place as Peter breaks down and weeps. Luke chapter 22 verse 61 says this. Hmm. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And ironically, the very moment that Jesus' accusers are challenging him to prophesy, his prophecies are coming true. And Jesus, the text tells us, looks at Peter from across the courtyard. And for Peter, he has that moment of realization, of conviction. Maybe that's happened to you. You're hearing a sermon, and it's as if the pastor was just speaking directly to you, as if God was just speaking directly to you in that moment. Maybe it's something your spouse says to you. And maybe she's said it before, he said it before, and you hear it. And it hits you. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's something you hear on the radio, something that you see on TV. God has a thousand ways 
to get your attention. And here what we see is Peter, who had walked with Jesus, who had walked on water, who confessed that Jesus is the Christ, who fought for Jesus. He's denied Jesus. Now, if Peter's story ended here, it would be sad. And I would teach a message on what not to be like. But in less than seven weeks, Peter, who denied Jesus three times, would stand up in Jerusalem where Jesus was arrested and crucified and he would preach that Jesus is their only hope. And over 3,000 people would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter would be used to bring healing to people and more people would come to believe in Jesus. And then the authorities would arrest Peter and say, you can't do this anymore. And Peter, who had just a few weeks ago denied Jesus, in Acts chapter four, verse 19 and 20, we learn, says that Peter and John answered and said to them who had arrested them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter says, I'm going to proclaim Jesus is the Lord. And you do what you want to do to me. And another promise of Jesus would come true. Peter would be the rock on which Jesus built his church. And today we are standing here talking about who Jesus Christ is because of practically speaking what God did through Peter. So the question is, how did Peter go from rejection to restoration? How did Peter go from rejection to restoration? And how might that lead us to respond today? I think there are three things we need to see from this. The first is this. He was broken over his sin. He was broken over his sin. After that rooster crowed and Jesus looked at him, he broke down and wept. He was broken over what he had done. Brokenness is paramount to us understanding who we are in relation to Christ. Brokenness is something that I look for. When somebody says they are following Jesus and they want to get baptized or, you know, they're talking to me about what it means to follow him. Even when it comes to a young child, you know, a lot of times a child will say, I accepted Jesus in my heart, which isn't a biblical phrase. I'm not saying it's not true, but it's not a biblical phrase. But what I want to hear is what does that mean? Because really the greater thing is that Jesus has accepted you, not that we have accepted him. And how does Jesus accept us? When we realize that we are sinners and we're broken over our sin and we realize that he's the only answer. Whenever I'm trying to help somebody in their marriage and, you know, somebody's kind of gone, done some things that aren't good or maybe both aren't doing things that are good. The truth is what I'm looking for is brokenness because saying I'm sorry is one thing. But there needs to be true brokenness over the things that we've done or what we have done. And what I see is sustained action, 
change, transformation comes from someone who is broken over their sin. As I read this text, I think the question that jumped out to me, perhaps to you if you're familiar with the Bible, is, okay, but Judas cried too. So what is is the difference between Judas and Peter? What is the difference between the person who cries when things go poorly and those who cry because they are truly broken? And what I believe was the difference between Peter and Judas, because Judas had guilt, and Judas went away and hung himself. He ran away. But Peter ran to Christ. Peter faced Christ. And that's the second thing I would point out today about how Peter moved from rejection to restoration. He was willing to face Christ. To be restored, you have to be willing to face Christ. And we see because of this, Peter spends time with Jesus during the 40 days. He is on earth after his resurrection. John tells us in John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, about this exchange. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, there's some debate over the use of the word love here, but I think what we need to point out very clearly is that three times Peter denied Jesus. Saying something three times like holy, holy, holy means you emphatically mean it. And then three times Jesus said, do you love me? And three times Peter answered yes. And three times Jesus said, then feed my sheep. You're forgiven. Now do my work. Obey me. You see, forgiveness is not just about confession. It's restoration. And it's obeying God. It's doing something with what's happened in your heart. But to get to that place, to hear what God would have from you, and to obey God and see restoration... You have to be willing to face Christ. And what takes place then is not a rebuilding of our self-confidence, but it is a God-confidence that we are then given. Peter gained a new sense of confidence because of his restoration by Christ. This isn't a confidence that says, I'm always going to fight It's a confidence that says I'm always going to trust God and there may be different meanings and implications of that. There's a song that people sing. I don't think we've sang this before, but you know, it says this is how I fight my battles and you say that over and over again. When I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. I have to be honest with you, I struggle with singing songs like that because I'm like, 
or just do something about your problems and do something about your battles. And I do think that sometimes in Christian world, we can just be like, God's just gonna take care of it. And he's like, yeah, I gave you hands and feet and a brain and all that, take care of it. But if we're not careful, we have to realize that that needs to be submitted to God's. And some of you, your song is, this is how I fight my battles, by getting into every argument on Facebook and every battle in my home and every battle at work and every single thing, I have to speak up and show up and, and do something about it. And you're not relying on God's plan and you're not trusting in God and letting him take care of you. And that's what we ultimately need to understand behind all of what is taking place here is that Jesus is behind Peter. Jesus is for Peter. Jesus is with Peter. And if you look at Luke's gospel, he shows us something that Jesus says to Peter in the midst of this kind of exchange. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32. He says, Simon, Simon, he's getting his attention. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus says, there is a spiritual battle for you because Satan knows that if he can derail you from following me and doing the things that I've called you to do, that he can win in such a great way. He doesn't say then, look, so figure it out. You're strong enough. You're enough. You can do it. He says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says to Peter, I'm praying for you. The third thing that moved Jesus, excuse me, Peter from rejection to restoration is that he was empowered by Jesus. Peter gets a bad rap. The point of this story here is not that Peter shouldn't have been a fighter or even that Peter denied Jesus because he was scared. The point is, there is a difference that the power of Jesus can make in your life. Peter, without Jesus, turns from this overconfident guy who denies anything to do with Jesus and his mission. And then when Peter encounters the risen Christ, Peter proclaims the gospel message and the church is born. D. Edmund de Bear says this, the terrible shame of his base denials with their public implications were wiped out only by the risen Christ. My great hope for you this morning is not that you are able to stay the course or that you are able to be strong enough, but that when you fail, and I mean when, not if you fail, you are broken about it. And you don't run from Christ, you run to Christ and you face Christ and you realize that Christ, Jesus, is praying for you. And Jesus empowers you. The apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter eight, verse 10 and 11, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit which conquered the grave lives in you, believer. And the answer to the challenges in your life is not figuring it all out for yourself, but is the realization that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God, the Father, for all of eternity. Jesus Christ, who could call down a legion of angels and win every battle, is praying for you. And he empowers you. And so I'm just going to tell you today that you might feel like your career plans and your life hasn't gone the way that you want it to be. Or now you're retiring and you don't know what you do with your life. And as an oversimplification, I'll just say God's power can do whatever he wants to do in this season of your life. So do not give up and do not get discouraged. In your marriage, maybe you are in a very bad place and it feels like things are dead and they are over. Jesus' spirit raised him from the dead and it can raise that marriage up. Maybe you're in a place where you're divorced and your life is not what you thought it would be and you've given up on a lot of your hopes and a lot of your dreams. I just want you to be aware, Christian, that the spirit of God is at live in you and Jesus is praying for you to do the will of God in your life. In parenting, you've probably messed up. Let me rephrase that. You have messed up. You will fail. Your children have messed up, but the spirit of God is alive in you. If you're a leader and it hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go, you failed forward up until this point, that's a lot of what leadership is. But the spirit of God, the grace of God is able to do things in your life. There is no addiction on earth that is stronger than the spirit of God and there is no prodigal that can outrun the power of God. Believe that today, not because I say it loudly, but because it's true and it was sealed loudly in the resurrection of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Lean into that today, church. Pray with me. Jesus, you looked at Peter and he knew. And I believe this morning There are those who know. And in their brokenness, may they face you. And God, thank you for your spirit that empowers us. And whether today, for the first time in our life, we're saying, Jesus, I need you, or whether it's just that constant daily need of you. Lord, we respond now by praising the one who has all authority and doing our best to unite our hearts and our minds to trusting in your kingdom. May you be exalted now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.